Hi everyone, it's been a minute, but we didn't mean for that to happen. Parks, as you probably know, doesn't have any institutional funding, nor do we want it to. Our show relies solely on donations, and our team works on these episodes in our free time. Anyway, we're working on new episodes for you and can't wait for you to hear them. This story comes from producer Yvonne Crumry, who first reported a version of it for a class in her graduate journalism program. If you're listening to this show, you're probably familiar with the fact that most U.S. national parks have been a tool for land dispossession, under the guise of conservation. By and large, the indigenous people who called these lands home for millennia were forcefully or strategically removed from their homelands so that these national parks could be created and the United States could seize more and more land. Today, we're bringing you an episode that counters this perpetual story of loss that we often hear in the media. It's the story of two tribal-run national parks, both in the Midwest, both completely owned and managed by the tribes who are native to the parklands. These parks are both just a few years old. However, they're tangible examples of tribes taking back their land so they can help preserve both the land and their culture. We'll let our reporter, Yvonne Crumry, take over from here. Episode four. Frog Bay and Iowa, Tribal National Parks. It's a clear spring day, and Chase Murado is leading me along a wooded trail in northern Wisconsin. We're walking through an old-growth forest of maple, hemlock, and birch trees. This just kind of connects to our other trail network as well. There are more than 60 national parks in the United States, and most are run by the federal government. But Frog Bay, run by the Red Cliff Band of the Ojibwe Nation, is the first of its kind, completely owned and managed by indigenous people. I'm at Frog Bay with Chase at a small beach overlooking Lake Superior. Yeah, just I think Lake Superior is such a a cool, unique, special place. Um, And then up in this area where, again, the tourism is, you know, one of the driving things in the area, but it's also uh, still pretty uh, quiet and peaceful and, you know, not a lot of hustle and bustle, really. When Frog Bay Tribal National Park was formed in 2012, there was almost no publicity. This was years before the battles over Standing Rock and Bears Ears were reported on by the mainstream media. In the years since, conversations about Native people and public lands have taken hold of the general public's attention. The land back movement has become a widespread call for tribal sovereignty. And last year, a second tribal government created a national park at the border of Kansas and Nebraska called Iway Tribal National Park. These tribal parks quietly demonstrate what it means to be Native-owned and managed. Parks that are run by the U.S. government, like Yellowstone or the Great Smoky Mountains, remain the most popular of their kind. So when people think of national parks, they think nature, recreation, and conservation, or at least the colonial version of it. These new tribal parks serve pretty much the same purpose, but with a deeper and more complex understanding of the land, its history, and the cultural ties to it. Back in Redcliffe, I'm sitting in Chase Murado's office. He heads the band's natural resources division and its two dozen or so staff members. The division manages the 175 acres of Frog Bay for the Red Cliff Reservation, among a bunch of other things. He stays busy. As we talk, he has a Zoom call open and one eye on his computer. The walls of his office display several maps of the reservation, mostly showing different kinds of land ownership, some tribal, some not. 
The Redcliffe Reservation is at the north tip of Wisconsin, facing the Apostle Islands. Like some of these maps here can kind of show, you can, yeah, the one behind you really kind of shows the, the reservation boundaries there. One map has five different colors, each showing a different landowner. Um, and then there's obviously a bunch of those different sections that are kind of cut out there. This patchwork map is due to a U.S. federal law known as the Dawes Act. The goal of this legislation was for the U.S. government to take more tribal land and to get Native people to assimilate into colonial culture. In 1887, the law broke up reservation land into allotments, which could be bought and sold by anyone. Even though tribal members were allotted some of this land, they couldn't grow food on many of the plots. So indigenous owners wound up having to sell their land anyway. In effect, the Dawes Act took a ton of land out of tribal hands. Today, it can be really tough for tribes to get back the land that was taken from them via the Dawes Act, especially if that land is desirable nowadays. In Redcliffe, this included most of the Lake Superior shoreline and the land where Frog Bay is now. The non-Native owners didn't allow tribal members to use this land to reach Lake Superior and fish despite their legal right to. Tribal historian Marvin Defoe, with a gray braid under his ball cap, recalls when Redcliffe members couldn't access much of the lake shore on the reservation. Certainly, that was the area there for setting our nets, for fishing, for doing things, whatever. But it got to a point where <laughs> that family didn't want no, nobody going down there, so they kind of blocked it off, put a gate on there. And... In 1980, a professor named David Johnson bought the land at auction for just under a million dollars. Thirty years later, he sold it to Redcliffe for half that. Johnson said he was, quote, a little embarrassed at owning property that should have been in the tribe's hands all along. His only request was that the land be conserved and not developed or logged. Marvin said that aligned with Redcliffe's goals precisely. Thus, Frog Bay Tribal National Park was founded. Now there's a pack of wolves that hangs out in the park, and some eagles, and of course, frogs. So the name Frog Bay isn't a coincidence, Marvin says, standing on the park's beach at Lake Superior. Now, I don't know if you were paying attention walking down, but they, they already told you, they're already sounding out to you if you were listening. Who heard them frogs coming north? Did you hear them? Right, they're saying, oh, welcome, boo Boo welcome, welcome. I heard them coming down, that's why I kind of slowed up. Redcliffe chose to call Frog Bay a, quote, tribal national park. The word national, Marvin says. Because we're a nation and we're sovereign. And that goes national just as well as any other park. The park is only a decade old, but it's been in the Ojibwe's hands for much longer than that, longer than it was out of them. The story certainly can go back thousands of years with, uh, with our connection to the land. We have a site there that's over 5,300 years old with indigenous connection to the land. So we have always been connected to the land. Frog Bay can tell more stories than the National Park Service does with its own parks, Marvin says. It gives us the opportunity to tell our own story, tell our own perspective of the land, the lake, and our words. You know, it gives it our, our perspective. Because <clears throat> you got the Potts Island National Extra, they focus on lighthouses. Well, there's more to land than lighthouses. What does Chase want for Redcliffe's future? More land back to preserve. You know, one of the things 
that's really important uh, to Redcliffe here is, you know, land repatriation and getting back the land that was, um, you know, once designated as the, the reservation boundaries here. There's a lot of different parcels that were, you know, sold or taken or... National parks run by the U.S. government are a point of national pride. The more majestic, the better. Tribal national parks take a different approach, not meant to be the biggest or the best, meant to just be. Ten hours south of Frog Bay, there's a second tribal national park where Kansas, Nebraska, and Missouri meet. It's called Iway Tribal National Park, and it's almost five times the size of Frog Bay, about 440 acres. Alan Kelly was born and raised in the area. He works for Iway and can usually be found in the tribe's museum. He says a national nonprofit called the Nature Conservancy donated a section of the park in 2020. Alan was sitting next to a man from the organization at a board meeting. The man offered the tract of land, which sits in the Rulo Bluffs, a rolling forested landscape home to at least 10 at-risk species. So he says, but we're having a hard time maintaining this. And he says, would you think your tribe would be interested in it? I said, yeah. I said, we'll be interested in that. And, uh, and then we, you know, we just discussed because we, we don't have any part of our reservation that hasn't been farmed or, or where the soil's dead and, and, and things like that, that, you know, that it would be, it would be a sacred land for us, you know. Iowa Tribal National Park is the last remaining strip of prairie in the area that hasn't been turned into corn or soybean fields. It gives a hint of what the prairie would have looked like before colonization. I came here first in my 20s and the 1980s. That's Lance Foster. He's Iowa Tribe's historian, among other things. And still there was all kinds of forest, tangled grapevines and, and all kinds of wonderful things down there, but that's all gone now. So we just have this little strip of what the prairie is gone for the most part. It's all corn, soybeans. The bottomlands have been drained and used for agriculture. We have this little strip of that with little remnant pieces of prairie here and there. He wants to make every important location at Iowa, natural and cultural, a part of the park. That includes an archaeological zone now known as the Leary site. It hosts artifacts and structures found from 800 to 900 years ago, left by people from two millennia ago, the Hopewell people. And then we have another tract, which is a National Historic Landmark, the Leary site, which since the late 1800s has been collected on. Um, it was in the 1966, I think it was designated a National Historic Landmark, and we'll go take you by there too. The site sits just off a road across the state line into Nebraska. There's a big sign at the Leary site for anyone visiting, like me. It looked like a big field with wildflowers and wild grasses. Pretty nondescript. And then I noticed all the bugs. It occurred to me that with the heavy pesticides on all the corn and soybean fields around us, this was really the only place for pollinators and other insects to thrive. But there was a lot more going on under bugs, flowers, and grasses. It is the largest Oneota village west of the uh, Missouri River. And it is kind of an overlap of Oneota culture, which is ancestral to the Iowa and Oto, Missouri people. And it was occupied here. The primary occupation was about 1200 to 1400 AD. 
It overlays a Kansas City Hopewell site, which on the bluffs. That Kansas City Hopewell site included some burial mounds. Ancient graves were all over the place here. However, since many burial places are on private property, the tribes can't do much to protect or preserve the sites. Plus, and this is perhaps the most devastating part, indigenous people can't access their ancestors' burial sites when they sit on private land. Like Redcliffe, much of Iway was divided into allotments. But unless the owners of the land decide to give it to Iway, they can't do anything to learn from or honor these graves. On a tour of the reservation, Alan showed me a small graveyard. He said it's the best view of Iway. He walked over and showed me his daughter's grave. She died a few years ago in a car accident at the age of 19. The cemetery where his daughter is buried is only a hundred or so feet away from burial sites of the Iway's ancestors. Lance's family has deep roots in the land as well, which he wants to include in the park. His family used to own a piece of land called Doopy Hollow. One of the memories that Lance's dad shared with him about this place was of the water from a natural spring there. And he said that it's the sweetest springs you ever tasted, the water. And it was just different. There were blackberries in the back area, and my grandfather built a little cabin there in the 20s. And it was, it was just kind of the family home. If there's any family that has a place, it's like your family home. That was our family place. And everybody thought of it that way. Lance loves this place. So as the tribe was getting today's parkland back from private ownership, he got to thinking. So, you know, I said, people understand parks and national parks conventionally, you know, that goes through Congress and all that stuff. But, you know, our treaties say we're a nation and we're a tribe. If you just say Iowa National Park, people think the state of Iowa. So we have to be Iowa, which is another spelling of our tribe. So it doesn't confuse people as much. But it, you have to put tribal so that people know it's not like the National Park Service. And then that's why I found Frog Bay as like, somebody else has done this. So people give us too much grief about it. We can say, those guys did it. We can do it too. Lance brought this idea of a tribal national park to Iway leaders in summer 2020. And at that time, we were pretty desperate trying to figure out what to do. And we didn't know where it was all going. So we can bring more visitors here if we have that and interpret our cultural side, our ancestry, and also our natural history and help connect our people to the land again so they can start um, learning a little bit of our language, um, getting out there because everybody's tied to the video screens and all that stuff. So they went with it and I think I only had to do a little bit of convincing and then we, and we, and we acquired it as part of that kind of um, idea and then we got it. We got it and it got established and the Nature Conservancy started spreading the word a little bit what was going on and so we got caught in the media and in fact I think um, Belgium had a story about it and stuff. So, yeah, you started getting the word out and we started getting people interested in stuff, which was cool. At Iway Tribal National Park, he would be able to tell the stories of his family, stories of belonging to a place. Before we end this story, we're going to go back in time again, back to the 1870s. At that time, Lance says the changes in Iway's homelands brought on by more settlers moving in led some of the tribe to move away to Oklahoma. Others stayed in Kansas like Lance's ancestors. The fact is, is that this is our home. We have nowhere else to go. You know, this is our reservation. Other people can sell out and move north to Alaska or whatever. There's no place else for us to go. We have to make it here. And 
this is it. Today, this park is the fruit of a long fight by the Iowa in Kansas to celebrate this land and their continued existence on it. Yet the national park title is still complicated. There's a, a pro and a con of calling something a national park. Because first of all, you know, there's that history of dispossession. But calling it a national park does help people to see the land differently, he says. People may treat it with more respect just because of its title. And the fact, in fact, when we first established one here, people were like, did you, you hear that they turned the entire reservation to a national park, which means I can't do nothing, you know? So there's that, which means that they did receive the idea that national park changes how you can use land. A few weeks after my first visit, I went back to see Lance at Iowa. Only this time, he couldn't meet face-to-face. He was feeling under the weather and was self-quarantining after traveling. But today, he's feeling weary for another reason, too. You know, I've been trying to figure out for a long time, how can we protect the little bits of land we have left? How can we, you know, our language, how can we bring back at least more awareness and some use of our language? Lance does two jobs in the tribal government, plus countless other daily tasks. So for Lance, his job is really about supporting his community, the people and the land. Iowa Tribal National Park is a chance to do both. I do think the prophecies are unfolding around us that we are facing something that most of us have never faced. The tribes have faced ends of worlds before. You know, it was the end of our world when our land was taken and the buffalo went away and everything. It became a different place from what we knew. But it's more than anything, it's a place, a way to protect us and get our own people to connect and the people that we see the vision the same way to try to see how their own places they can try to save. Both Frog Bay and Iowa give tribal members and non-tribal members a chance to see the roots of the land. But the fact remains is that the people who came, the totally non-Indian people, there is a lot they can learn about connecting to the land and expecting the land and finding a new way to live. And indigenous people, we've, we've been old neighbors here for a long time and we know some of those things. And I think that uh, you can learn. You can learn, you're gonna have to learn. I, one of my jobs, I worked in Hawaiian rights, Native Hawaiian rights in Hawaii for several years. And there's a term called kupaka aina. Kupaka aina means sprouts of the land, people who are native to the land. And you can be a sprout, even if your seed came from some other country. You can sprout in the land and you can become part of it, but you have to be humble. It's going to take generations to figure it out, but you can step-by-step take a journey. In the meantime, you can come to Frog Bay and Iowa Tribal National Parks and listen to the frogs as they welcome you. Parks would like to thank Yvonne Crumry for bringing this beautiful story to us, and we'd like to wish her luck on new endeavors in Alaska where she's reporting for KTOO Public Radio in Juneau. You can follow her work at YvonneCrumry.com or follow her Twitter at Yvonne Crumry. More thanks to Chase Morado, Marvin Defoe, Alan Kelly, and Lance Foster for their storytelling in this episode. We'd also like to give gratitude and recognition to the Red Cliff Band of the Ojibwe Nation and the Iowa Tribe. 
Parks is hosted and co-created by me, Mary Mathis, alongside Cody Nelson, our producer and co-creator. Our story editor and consultant is Taylor Hensel. Music by Mitch McAndrew, with additional music by Cody Nelson. Kenyon Ellsworth designed our website, which is parkspodcast.com. You can email us at hello at parkspodcast.com, and please share this podcast if you liked it. You can also give us a review and subscribe wherever you're listening to this show. Thank you for listening.